We have been in a verse-by-verse study of the book of Genesis, and we've been studying the story of Jacob and Esau. And we've seen how Jacob schemed against his brother Esau and stole his blessing, and then how Esau decided that he was going to kill his brother Jacob, and then how their mother, Rebekah, sent Jacob away for his own safety to her hometown, the town of Haran in northern Mesopotamia. We've got a map up so you can see they were living in Beersheba, but she sent him all the way up to Haran so you can see how far that is. And she sent him to her brother, his uncle, a man named Laban. And Uncle Laban, we saw, tricked Jacob into marrying his older daughter, Leah, when Jacob really loved the younger daughter, Rachel. Okay, so... We're going to move on now. So are you ready? We're going to dig into the word. We ready? All right, let's go. Genesis chapter 30, verse 43. And Jacob became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks of cattle and camels and donkeys. And then the Lord said to Jacob, go back now to the land of your fathers, to the land of Canaan, to the promised land, and to your relatives, and I will be with you. But remember, who is still living in the land of Canaan? Esau, yeah, who the last time we met was going to kill Jacob. All right. Genesis 32, then Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you accompanied by 400 armed men. Then Jacob was greatly afraid. So he divided the people who were with him into two groups saying, if Esau comes against one group, and attacks it, then the other group will escape. And Jacob prayed and said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, you who told me to return to my country and my relatives and you would bless me, I am, say the next word out loud, I am unworthy of all the steadfast love and faithfulness which you have shown me. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan River, that is 20 years ago, when he was fleeing from his brother Esau, and now I have become two groups of people. Remember how he split his wives, his children, his servants into two groups? Remember? Hello, yes, okay, that's what he's talking about. Deliver me, I pray, Jacob says, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and also the mothers with the children. And you know, God answered Jacob's prayer. When he and Esau finally met, look what happened. Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him and fell on Jacob's neck and kissed him and they both wept. Esau had forgiven his brother. What a beautiful thing this is. And the Bible tells us that Esau and Jacob remain friends for the rest of their life. Now you say, well, Lon, wait a minute. Didn't we just go through that passage last week? Yes, we did. But there was a very important verse that I didn't stop for us to look at last week that I want us to go back and get to this week. And it's verse 10. Oh, Lord, Jacob said, I am, say the word again unworthy of all the steadfast love and faithfulness which you have shown me. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan 20 years ago, and now I have become two groups 
of people. Now, folks, does it surprise you at all to hear these words coming out of Jacob's mouth? I am unworthy. I mean, 20 years before, Jacob was one of the cockiest men imaginable. And now here he is saying this, I am unworthy. You know, folks, God loves this kind of attitude that Jacob has right here. That Jacob exhibits right here. Listen to what the word of God said. Jesus said, Luke chapter 18, for everyone who exalts himself, God will humble. But he who humbles himself, God will exalt. The Bible says, James 4, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. The Bible says, 1 Peter chapter 5, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due season. If you want to know something that the living God of the universe loves, if you want to know something that will cause the heart of the living God of the universe to turn towards you with tenderness and with compassion, you come to him with this kind of humility, the kind of humility that is self-effacing, the kind of humility that is a give God all the glory kind of humility, the kind of humility where we stand in wonder and awe of all God has done for us and we say, Lord, I am unworthy. I am unworthy. Man, you'll win the heart of God. And you know, we see this same attitude in the life of the great man of God, King David. Very same attitude. In 2 Samuel 7, God made David some very special promises, a covenant that we call the Davidic covenant. And the most important part of the Davidic covenant was the promise of God that the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be a direct descendant from King David, which indeed he was. But there was another Another part to this covenant, it's 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 9. The Bible says, God says, I will cut off your enemies from before you, David, and I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men on earth, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. And in the next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 8, we see God fulfill this promise. In that chapter, we learn that David conquered the Philistines, and then he conquered the Moabites, and then he conquered the Syrians. In that chapter, we learn that he conquered the Hittites and the Ammonites and the Edomites. And 2 Samuel 8 comes to a close with God having neutralized every hostile nation around Israel and in the process having made David the most powerful leader of his day. You see a map on the screen. Everything you see in purple was David's kingdom. Leon Wood, the writer of Survey of Israel's History, said, and I quote, David's authority now extended from the Gulf of Aqaba in the south all the way to the Euphrates in the north. David's empire did not rival those of Egypt or Assyria or Babylon at the height of those nations' power, but, he said, there is no doubt that David was the strongest and most powerful ruler alive in his day, end of quote. But here's what I really want us to see. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, right at the beginning, 
When God first made him all these promises about what God was going to do for him and how great God was going to make him, but before any of those promises had come true, David had not yet in 2 Samuel 7, he had not conquered the Ammonites. He had not conquered the Edomites. He had not conquered the Moabites. He had not conquered the Hittites. He had not conquered the termites. You understand what I'm saying? He hadn't conquered anybody yet. And yet in that chapter, when God makes him these promises, look what David said. 2 Samuel 7, verse 18. David said, say the next three words with me. Who am I? Who am I, O Lord God? And who is my family that you have brought me this far? Who am I? Now, I want us to skip 25 years into the future. First Chronicles 29. David has conquered all these nations. David's empire is at its apex. David is approaching the end of his life. He has amassed a huge fortune. And he is collecting money for his son Solomon to use to build the temple after his death. And here's what David in 1 Chronicles 29. The Bible says, David says, in my personal devotion to this project, the temple... I now give my, what's the next two words? Personal treasures of gold and silver over and above everything I've provided out of the official treasury. You understand what he's saying here? He's saying, I've got an official treasury that belongs to the nation, and I've given a bunch of money to the wards of the temple from that, but now I've dipped into my personal finances, and I have made an offering. And how much did he offer? Well, the Bible goes on to say 3,000 talents of gold and 7,000 talents of silver. At today's prices, that's about $1.2 billion dollars. And after David does this, I want you to see what he says. You ready? He says, what are the first three words? Who am I? Lord, that I should be able to give as generously as this. Now, here's the point. You see, I was wondering if there's a point. There's a point. Here's the point. The point is it's one thing to say, Lord, who am I, when you're at the very beginning of your career, you're a rookie king, and you haven't done anything yet. It is a radically different thing to say, Lord, who am I that you should have blessed me like this, when you are at the end of your career, when you are the most powerful ruler in the ancient Near East, when you are a bigger-than-life figure in the world, when your personal fortune runs into the billions of dollars to still be saying, Lord, who am I? Are you all with me? Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Yeah, okay. All right. And yet this is exactly what David did. Look, friends, even at the zenith of his power, David was still as overwhelmed. David was still as awestruck about where God had taken him and what God had done for him as he was at the very beginning. He never lost the wonder of God's goodness to him. He never lost the awe of God's blessing on his life. Do we all see that? Okay, now. Okay, good, thank you. Now, 
We want to stop our passage now because it's time for us to ask our most important question. And so y'all ready? All right, nice and loud. You ready? Here we go. One, two, three. Yeah. You say, you know, Lana, I appreciate everything you've said here, but I, I don't really see what any of this has to do with me. Oh, friend, it has so much to do with you. It has so much to do with me. Because it tells us where God's sweet spot is. It tells us where God's soft spot in his heart is. It tells us what kind of attitude the Lord is looking for from you, from me, as his followers. The kind of attitude that he cherishes, the kind of attitude that he blesses, the kind of attitude where he releases his greatest grace. I believe with all my heart that a big part of why God did all the great things he did for Jacob and a big part of why he did all the great things that he did for David is because both of them never lost the awe. They never lost the wonder of God's undeserved mercy towards them. And what this means is that as followers of Christ, if we want to see God flood our lives with his greatest, richest blessing, like he did Jacob, like he did David, then we must be people, listen now, who strive never to lose the wonder of God's blessings to us, who strive never to lose the awe of everything that God has given us and not to take it for granted or see it as an entitlement or begin to act like we we do it. You say, well, how, how exactly, Lon, do we maintain that wonder? Well, I'll tell you what's really helped me, and I think it's the secret. It's to never forget where you came from, to never forget where God found you and me when he picked us up and brought us to Christ. Hey, and you know what's interesting? God even reminds David of that in 2 Samuel 7. Before he ever gave him any of the promises, he says this to him. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts to David, David, I took you from the pasture, from taking care of sheep, where the most intelligent thing anybody ever said to you all day was, you know. And I made you the king of Israel. David, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget where I found you. And friends, we can't forget either. God found us sinking in our sin. God found us drowning in our guilt and our shame. God found us on the way to hell for all of eternity with no one to pull us out of the quicksand that we were in. And Jesus said, Lord, prepare me a body and I'll go do it. And so he came to earth and died on the cross and rescued our soul from hell. And he rescued our life from the pit and he turned our nothingness into somethingness. But here's the question, why did he do it for you? Why? Why did he do it for me? You know, in 45 years, that's the question I can't get over. When I was 22 years old, man, I was so lost and so confused. I was just like a little boy who didn't have any idea where he was going or what was going on. I was totally out of control. I was the, one of the most profane people you have ever met. I had a dirty mouth 
because I had a dirty mind. I lied, I cheated, I stole, I had no conscience. I was a sociopath of the worst kind. I forced my girlfriend to have an abortion. I dealt dope to put myself through school. And yet, the living Christ put a guy named Bob Eckhart right on the street in Chapel Hill, North Carolina for me. And the living God had that man, Bob Eckhart, give me a Bible. I had said the week before, God, if you're real, have somebody give me a Bible. Now, as a drug dealer, drug dealers generally don't give Bibles away. Where am I going to get a Bible? And Bob Eckhart, that first day I met him, reached in the back of his truck and took out a brand new Bible, still in the cellophane, handed it to me. I about dropped dead on the spot. I still have that Bible, by the way. And God, for me, healed my dog. My dog had the mange. And I said, God, if you're real, I want to give my life to you, but I got to know you're real. If you're real, heal my dog. You say, well, Lon, my theology doesn't allow for God to heal dogs. Well, I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you about your theology. I'm just telling you, God healed my dog. That's all I know. But the question is why? Why would God do that for me? Why would God go to all that trouble for me? I wouldn't have gone to that trouble for me. Why did he do it? Folks, to this day, I don't have an answer to that question. But I'll tell you what, every time I think about it, every time I go back to the cross, every time I remember what I was when Jesus picked me up, man, I'll tell you, there's not a thing in the world for me to be arrogant about. There's not a thing in the world for me to boast about. Everything that's happened in my life has been Jesus. And I stand in awe of it and I say, Lord, who am I? Who am I, Lord, that you would do all that you've done for me? I'm unworthy. I have no problem admitting that. You know that, Lord. I'm amazed. And folks, when you go back to where you were when Jesus picked you up, you ought to be able to look also and say, Lord, why would you do this for me? And everything you've done since, Lord, who am I? Who am I that you would shower this kind of love on me, Lord? Folks, if we never lose the wonder of the cross, we will never lose the wonder of all of God's undeserved mercy to us. You understand? If we never lose the wonder of the cross in our life, we will never lose that awe that we have about all God's other mercies in our life. So you say, well, Lon, what's, what's been your point today? What are you trying to get done today? Oh, what I'm trying to get done today as your pastor, as someone who loves you guys deeply, what I'm trying to get done today is to convince you and me to stay humble before the Lord by keeping our eyes on the cross, by remembering where God found us, by remembering what we were when, when we came to Christ. I'm trying to get us to the place where we have the attitude before the Lord that Jacob had. Lord, I am unworthy of all your steadfast love and faithfulness. I'm trying to get us to the place where we have the attitude that David had when he said, Lord, who am I that you've done this much for me? 
Because if we can get there, that's when we unlock God's greatest willingness and ability to keep showering us with his richest graces. Let me close by saying, remember the formula, the equation Jesus gave us. We looked at it earlier. Luke 18, it says, everyone who exalts himself, God will humble. Here's the other side of the equation. But he who humbles himself, God will exalt. My goal today as your pastor is to urge and beg you and myself that we all get on the right side of this equation. The right side of this equation is he, she who humbles themselves. God will exalt. That's where we want to be. We don't want to be on the other side. May God help us with our eyes full of the cross to get on the right side. Let's pray together. And let me give you a moment right now for you to talk to God and say, Lord, one question, that's all I'm going to suggest you ask him. Lord, have I gotten too big for my britches? Show me, Lord. Have I lost the wonder of your undeserved grace? Am I arrogant? Am I treating the things you do for me as entitlements? Am I taking them for granted? Lord, am I too big for my britches? And then as he answers that question, let's humble ourselves before him. Father, Romans chapter 12, verse 3 tells us, Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought, but use sober judgment about yourself. Oh God, how we need to do that. In a world that cherishes arrogance, we have a God who cherishes humility. Dear Jesus, help us be people of the book, people of God, not people of this world. And Lord, forgive us for believing our own PR. Forgive us, God, for taking you for granted. Lord, help us remember where we were. And to see everything as undeserved mercy to us. And as you told Adam, from dust you came and to dust you're going to return. Lord, remind us it's pretty hard to get arrogant about being dust. So bring us low before you where we belong. That you might exalt us in due season. And we pray these things. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen. Amen.